Welcome once again to the Johnny Fallon podcast election series where we take a look at the elections that have shaped and made modern Ireland from 1977 up to date. Using sources uh, gleaned from the Car Communications Library, we're going to look at the story of the politicians, the policies, the governments, the ups and the downs that have led us to where we are today. So if, like me, you are a political nerd who loves to look at politics in depth and take a journey through all of the stories and all of the little things that help shape those big decisions, then do sit back, relax, have a listen and journey back in time with me through each election and each major event in our modern history. In our last episode, we took a look at the election of February 1982. And of course, that led to Charles Hockey's return to power uh, in this amazing period in Irish history. And Hockey's return to power um, on the back of a deal uh, with the independent Tony Gregory and the Workers' Party in order to try and shift, I suppose, what was a period of economic crisis and this sense that, yes, Fianna Fáil were always going to come back and the Fine Gael Labour government had only been in for a short time. They hadn't got to grips with the crisis, as we saw in that last podcast. There was a lot that was hoping that maybe Hockey was going to now get to grips with things. But, of course, he had fallen short of that majority that he wanted, but maybe, maybe there was something here. The previous government had had its problems with uh, working with independence, but maybe there was something stronger in Hahi's government because people felt, you know what, particularly with the Gregory deal, it was expensive, it was money, but it could be justified. And, you know, this government could last because maybe he needed Tony Gregory and, and the independence and the Workers' Party would need that deal. If they were getting what they wanted out of it, they'd vote for anything else. And and therefore, maybe the deal could work. Of course, the, econ- the economy wasn't really uh, getting any better at this stage. Nobody still was dealing with the overriding problem of needing to cut spending. Everybody still obsessed at this point with trying to increase taxes because they don't want to do the really painful stuff. And that's the bit that they have to get to grips with now. So there was probably a little bit, certainly within Fianna Fáil, um, of of hope maybe coming into the election uh, in February 1982. Disappointment for sure, though, that they didn't get the majority. But maybe they would see how the the, the country uh, would, would go from that point. Now, when I say there was hope, there wasn't a lot of hope. I mean, we're getting through here, and I'm sure as you've listened to this story from 77, it's exhausting. It's exhausting talking about these things and the economy continually, this this endless. I mean, for anybody working at this time, it must have been just incessant, the talk of deep economic problems, the talk of crisis in the economy. Um, and that's really, really hard you know, for workers, for voters, it's no wonder they're going to search for something because anything that changes that narrative is welcome. Uh, but 
it wasn't going to be easy because tough decisions would be necessary and politicians very often don't like having to take those tough decisions. So what happens in 1982? Well, you get this bizarre year um, because they're going to have, or coming up to, they're going to have an election in November 1982. So all of these elections coming back to back just show how unstable this period is. And a large part of that has to go down to the fact that Fianna Fáil as the largest party. And, and here's the thing, in any economy, in any, in any political system, you generally have one or two very big political movements that kind of hold things together and people rail against them and they don't like them and, and, and they can be blocks to change and so on. But they're also something of the glue that is holding things together. Because when you've got a big, massive block like Fianna Fáil was at this point, any shudder or weakness in the foundations, any kind of problems within it, is going to reverberate around what happens to the actual economy. And right now, Fianna Fáil is not in a particularly good state. It's not doing too bad electorally, um, certainly by, by standards that we'd look back on today. But the problem is a lot of how it's been run. And this year, or, or guts of a year, becomes the zenith of maybe everything that was wrong at this period within Fianna Fáil and, and some of the issues that begin to come out here show just how the party was being run, um, how it was being dominated and how that was then following through into the political sphere, into the Irish uh, economic sphere and into the body politic because Fianna Fáil being that, that glue, if you like, within the system, having all of these issues is beginning to, to reverberate and, and political systems don't like that they don't like the ones and it's the same you will see in in later years when you take that big party out and you you it collapses for whatever reason that takes a long time to wash through a system because the system then isn't able to cope with that very well and brings its own problems and we'll see that later but getting straight into it how come we end up with an election again and it's because of that instability. It's because that everything is done right now in this period in really short-term thinking. Everything has been done by all parties, to be fair. They're all thinking short-term here. And therefore, they're not actually getting any proper... The deals over the line, they, they don't secure proper government. Nobody knows what's coming next. They're making decisions based on things to get them through a deal, get them through right now, without worrying about hoping that something's going to change dramatically. The thing is, though, <clears throat> once they go into government here, they get off to some bit of a... a, a some some lucky stuff goes their way. And, and there's an interesting story um, which is told by Albert Reynolds as he comes into Cabinet here um, in his first ministry. Because remember, the government has fallen... Uh, and we've had this election in February um, 1982 because of this whole thing of VAT and children's shoes or food stamps, depending on what view you take on it. But it's all become about just a couple of million they can't make up and, and how they were going to deal with finding those few million 
in order to save the government. And the government fell because of that. And that brings us to the first cabinet meeting. Um, and I'm going to quote from Albert Reynolds' own, own biography here. Uh, quote. That same evening, we were called in by the Taoiseach to our first cabinet meeting. The outgoing government, he told us, had not only fallen on the rejection of their proposal to impose VAT on the sale of children's shoes, but because that proposal had been defeated, they had failed to raise the necessary income needed to fulfil their budget and had left us with an outstanding deficit of £6 million. It was up to each minister, instructed the Taoiseach, to go through the finances of his or her individual department and find areas where money could be saved in order to make up the shortfall. There could be no more increases in tax. So as ministers, we were under pressure to find funds somehow, somewhere in the system. The following day, I set my department the task of going through all the files and papers, checking every figure to see if we could work out a way in which we could contribute towards the shortfall. We worked at it on through the night until around four in the morning. We came upon a document that showed that the outgoing government had estimated a certain income from the sale of gas for the last quarter of the year, but had failed to verify it before they included it in the final national figure in the budget. They had neglected to check the final sales figures and had taken the estimate as the actual figure. Now, for some reason, during the last quarter, there had been a surge in the consumption of gas and the actual income raised was in excess of the estimate. By a long way. By some £13 million, in fact. In other words, the previous government had not needed to fall. The next morning, we all gathered with the results of our searches and I waited as each head of department offered what he or she could to make up the deficit. I was sitting next to Minister for Finance, my pal, Ray McSharry, and finally it came to my turn. How much short are you now, Ray? I said, and he told me whatever the figure was. Well, I said, you can keep all that and on top... There's a full £6 million extra from me. But the balance of the money I found, £7 million, I'm keeping for expenditure within my own department. Unquote. Now, it's, a, it's a, just a fascinating insight into what happens when you're working at budgets and governments are under pressure and there's the stress at political level. You know, you've just gone through an election where you couldn't find the money and you were having this big debate. And you saw that in the last podcast. So we talked about just how, how much they tried to work this and, and to appeal to it. And Gareth Fitzgerald was appealing to them to stick with it. And the fact that the country just needed to get on with some tough decisions. And that government felt at that stage that they were going to be able to do this if they could get through this budget. They, of course, didn't. And then you discover, actually... The money was there all along. Just someone hadn't checked the figures on on uh, the income from, from gas. And, you know, that's what happens in politics. So much of it happens and big events are decided by small things that never needed to happen. Just somebody needs to check things. Um, and when you get down to it, there's just so much. Governments are faced with so much. Ministers are faced with so much. The, the problems can be so huge getting down to details 
is almost impossible. And, and you know, in later years, Albert and Reynolds himself was to say, it's the little things that trip you up. And it so is. You know, there was a government that, that could have survived. And one of the big shocks and things we talk about, the big memories of that and children's shoes that's gone into Irish political folklore, need not have happened. We need not have had that extra election in this year. But at least for the current government, they were off to a decent start. I mean, look, they now have the money. They can balance that, that budget. They can get out there and say, OK, we're, we're good. We're, we're ready now to uh, go ahead with the budget we've got and, and what's been presented to us. You know, we've, we've got a reasonable chance now because we don't have to do any major cuts here. Uh, in order to to make the existing budget, even if it wasn't ideal, it's still better than having to introduce new cuts. But despite that, um, it's a very different time. And that's not exactly going to go to plan. You might think that's a great start, yeah, but the economy's still struggling here. And that may get you through the short-term budgetary issue. But, I mean, we've we've major problems and the economy is not getting to grips with these major problems. Hahi too, at this period, is, as I say, this is at the zenith of, of, of Hahi's power. He's now come back in. And what you begin to see again is this dominant personality um, that is ruling things a little bit like an emperor. Um, and, and there's a he, his attitude to people and his attitude to things within Fianna Fáil is causing big, big issues, big divisions within the party that aren't going away. And we've seen them in the previous podcast. We've seen how they begin to ripple and, 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 and cause this fracture within the party. But, you know, look, now that he's in, there's a hope that maybe, maybe that they, they, he's going to deal with things differently, but he doesn't. I mean, one of the, the things is, uh, you know, that I came across here was a story recounted um, by Mary Harney um, in terms of what happened her at this period coming into government. Um, and this is taken from Katie Hannan's book, The Naked Politician. Um, quote, the date was 11 March 1982. The young backbencher was enjoying a convivial, convivial lunch in the home of Hahi's mortal enemy, George Colley, when she received a message summoning her to the party leader's office. She rang and asked if it could wait until later in the afternoon and was told that it couldn't. Her colleagues naturally thought that Harney was being called in to be told of a promotion. She left the lunch with their congratulations ringing in her ears. Joe Walsh drove me in. I was saying I didn't want it. Joe was saying, don't be mad. Ray Burke was going out as I was coming in. He wished me luck. But Hahi didn't offer her the keys of a state car. He had called her away from her birthday lunch on the day he was handing out his appointments to dispense a humiliating dressing down, or as she herself called it, a bollocking. But it wasn't just Hahi's flashes of political sadism that were threatening to break Harney's spirit. She profoundly disagreed with the party's stance on a raft of social policy issues and had grown weary of towing a party line that was fundamentally opposed to her personal position. Unquote. There's just something in that story that again demonstrates how Hahi approached leadership of the party. 
I mean, look, leaders have to be tough. Sometimes leaders give you a bollocking. Sometimes we all know that good bosses, good CEOs. It's part and parcel of, of, of working with them. It's part and parcel of, of that. You have to be able to take that. That's fair enough. When you do something wrong. The idea here, uh, and, and, and it's described there as political sadism, and, and that's what it looks like. You know, this is the day how he's calling people in and telling them, you're promoted. You know, you're promoted, you're getting a job. And he calls her on that day and tells her to come in. Of course, he knew she's going to think she's getting a promotion. And it's her birthday and she's on her having lunch and she's with her family. So who else would you be called away? You know, it's because he knows I'm going to make you suffer today. I'm going to have a little bit of a laugh at your expense. And he calls her away, brings her in and says, you know, this dressing down. So when maybe her spirits are up thinking, oh, OK, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm going to get the next leap in my career. And then that must have been crushing and humiliating. And then go back. Can you imagine what it must have felt like going back to everybody who said, yeah, I think you must be. So that's why else would he call you? And then you go, so did you get it? No, no, actually, I, I got a bollocking about something. Um, yeah, I mean, that's tough. And it's completely unnecessary, but it gives an insight into how how he approached things. And it was about always laying down these markers, laying down these ideas that this is how I treat people who go against me. And they, the parties run on fear here. And that's the, the overriding emotion. It has to be fear. Um, and of course, that doesn't go away um, because you're approaching a time when uh, how he feels that he needs to do this just to keep the party together. But there's a bit of chicken and egg here because how much of this is how he doing because he's under threat and how much of it is because how he is feeling, uh, you know, uh, he, the more he does it, of course, the more people are getting scared and saying, this guy, we've got to get rid of him. Um, and that's what's going on too within the party, which is cause and effect, hard to say. Um, now... <clears throat> That was the, the, the mood. So you, you still got Hahi in this same zone and he's still the dominant character. In, in that story, I told you there too from Albert Reynolds about it. It's interesting how Albert Reynolds makes the point at the end of that story, how quickly he turns to say, OK, I found 13 million. Here's 6 million for you. But the other 7 million I'm keeping for myself. And he immediately jumps in to do that. And one of the reasons here... Is, is because he was inclined to take everything. He was inclined to everything was his. A cabinet table was not a, a place of I am the most senior person and these are all seriously good people. It was a treatment of people as if they were just employees. I need to have people put in those positions, but, you know, they're not really serious. He can overrule them at any point. He is absolutely dominant. And... The fact that Reynolds wouldn't feel the need to say, I'm going to hive out this money here for my department. You're not getting this bit because I need to go do some stuff in my department. Just shows how 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 quickly he felt the need to put that marker down because otherwise the whole lot would be taken and how he would say, I'll do something else with this money. Um, so that's effectively how the country's been run. Um, but Ray McSharry has come in here as Minister for Finance. So Ray McSharry has a different view of it. Ray McSharry 
gets where this economic problem is at. And he's quick to decide, right, I'm going to try and deal with some of these issues. I'm going to try and deal with some of it, get ahead of of, of some of the, the major issues that we faced. Uh, and I'm going to turn again to, to John Lee's book uh, here where he, he, he talks a little bit about this, Ireland 1912 to 1985. Quote, Hockey's finance minister, Ray McSharry, initially poured scorn on coalition purveyors of gloom and doom, promising instead boom and bloom. However, the horrible realities of the situation impinged on him as the country continued to live beyond its means, with net foreign debt rising from 3,451 million at the end of 1981 to 5,114 million a year later. McSharry belatedly announced in July 1982 the postponement of a 5% instalment in the pay rises for public servants negotiated under the latest national pay agreement, as well as a series of spending cuts. Government began to prepare a new plan, The Way Forward, designed to adjust at long last economic policy, if not quite the underlying realities, at least in their general direction, rather than pretending that the realities could be ignored indefinitely and the country live as if tomorrow would never come. It seemed that Hahi was finally determined to treat the disease he had diagnosed in January 1980, but whose spread he had been since instrumental in assisting. Unquote. So... <clears throat> You get Ray McSharry coming in here and saying, okay, right, there's, we're, we're, we're not doing doom and gloom. We're having this, this great phrase of uh, boom and bloom. Um, typical kind of thing politicians say. Uh, but deep down, he knows. He knows they've got a problem and they know that they've got to get to, to grips with this. Now, McSharry is tough um, and he's tough. He's a tough politician. He's a, a, a tough around the cabinet table. Probably one of the few people who he has to respect and maybe even be wary of. Now, McSharry has always been a strong supporter of Hahi's, which of course helps, but he's one of the few that's able to stand up and be heard within that. But of course, certain things uh, refuse to go away. Um, and anything to do with, you know, the economy and what we're going to do about it is always brought back to the need for elections and the need for uh, a change in, in policy in order to get votes. And of course, that's going to be no different because Hahi decides to have a little bit of a masterstroke when he comes in to government. And that is all based on what he sees as an opportunity to strengthen his hold on power. Um, I'm going to quote from John Lee again here, quote, How he continued to show the stuff of which he was made by disappointing expectations in his own party of the coveted vacant Irish commissionership in Brussels. Following Michael O'Kennedy's return to domestic politics, Hahi audaciously offered the post to Dick Burke, the previous Fine Gael commissioner, now representing a constituency that Fianna Fáil could reasonably hope to win and in the person of Hahi's sister-in-law, Eileen Lamas, who had lost her seat in February. 
Great, therefore, was the consternation when Fine Gael actually won the by-election in May, despite a campaign by Fianna Fáil that displayed signal sol- solicitude even by by-election standards for voter sensitivity. Unquote. Said, so, oh, he comes up with this great plan. He says, you know, we need extra seats here. He's he's got a very it's 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 he doesn't really have a working majority here. He's he's only getting by. And he decides, I can actually get a seat here. And everybody in Vienna Fall, of course, wants to be made European Commissioner. That's a nice job. It's a big job. It's a job that gives you great uh, profile, security. Yeah, they all want it. Of course, you give it to one of your own. How he pulls what seems to be a masterstroke. I'm not giving it to one of our own because... That would maybe cause me to lose a seat, particularly in these times, because the person you send here is a, a, a TD. I'm going to go and I'm going to give it to Fine Gael. Now, that shows a couple of things. First of all, it looks like this masterstroke, because Fianna Fáil could win this by-election. They're strong at by-elections. They're strong in this constituency. They have a ready-made candidate in Eileen Lamasse. So, great stuff. You know, that that looks like, you know, again, the political stroke. Second thing it shows at this point was the disregard how he actually even had for the European project. Because he didn't see, he didn't care really who was European commissioner. He didn't care what was, was happening over there. It was an irrelevant role really in his mind because what was more important was the arithmetic here at home. Um... <clears throat> And and it it also showed that the party didn't matter and keeping it within the party didn't matter. His role within the party was what mattered. Um and he's he's if I turn to Stephen Collins just to who also describes uh, some of the, the, the issues on this, he says, quote the Dublin West by-election had been precipitated by another hahi stroke. In an effort to remove an opposition seat and win a badly needed extra one for Fianna Fáil, Hahi offered the vacant EU commissionership to Fine Gael TD Dick Burke. It was a disastrous miscalculation. Not only did Fianna Fáil lose the by-election, but Fine Gael's victory gave Gareth Fitzgerald renewed optimism that Hahi's government could be taken out. One of the more hilarious stories of the campaign concerned the instruction given by Ray Burke, then Minister for the Environment, to have young trees planted in a new housing estate in the constituency. After the election defeat, Burke ordered the local authority to dig them up again to show voters what he thought of their ingratitude. Unquote. Now look, that's again how politics is working at this time. So he thinks this is a great stroke, thinks it's good to do, um, goes out and then says, right, you know, here we go. You know, let's let's give people what they want. Um, and then, of course, you Ray Burke <laughs> uh, going out with this ridiculous situation of let's plant all these young trees and then instruct them. And you know what? Instructs them then, take them up. Take them up and show them that you cannot do this to us. If that's your gratitude to us, then you don't get the trees. Um this kind of paternal attitude towards voters, this paternal, you can, you can, you can, you can't punish us, we'll punish you. It's bizarre. Um, and it shows just, again, how, how little they, they really understood what the public were going to take or, or, or th- this idea that they were in absolute power. I mean, it's the kind of thing that, that would be from some military junta somewhere rather than democratically elected politicians 
Um, and, and it's stuff like that that's causing so much of this instability within Fianna Fáil and inability to hold on to power at this point. Um, but you know what, at the time, it probably seemed like a good idea. Yeah, well, show them. Show them a thing or two. You don't get vote for us, you don't get your trees. Um, and there's always an element in politics. I know this myself over the years of in the initial, um, when you're smarting from a defeat or an insult to go, yeah, well, I'll show you. Uh, and it always takes a camera head to go, calm down, that's not going to work out long term. That's a real reactive measure, as, of course, all anger is. Uh, in that moment but it does show that this is this is an era where politicians feel or certainly some politicians feel that absolute power is what they have um now the advantage if you like i want to call it that of this moment was if you wanted something if you really needed something this was the time all those stories are born uh, from that, you know, you went into a politician's constituency office um, and you asked that politician for something. And you know what? They generally delivered. They generally could get you what you wanted, when you wanted. They were fixers. So if you needed something or you needed a system, you needed somebody you're thinking is, unf you know, they're struggling or they're in difficult circumstances. Can we bend the rules that would allow them because the rule never foresaw this situation? Of course they can. They sort it out. No bother. In later years, you see, they don't have that kind of power and they're, they're, they're mucking around with it. But it's a good thing because it's also a thing that people were absolutely not entitled to certain things and you could walk in and ask your politician, and there you go, it's delivered. And I remember once being told, uh, while watching a room full of people, um, you know, queuing, in fact, to meet a, a TD. And somebody else noted to me and said, look at this, look at the room. It's heaving with people all waiting to see. And every one of them is looking for something they're not entitled to. And I'm always stuck with me because I thought, it's true. For an awful lot of these people, they are looking for something that if they could get or thought it was available or, you know, they were entitled to it, they would be getting. But they're looking for help because they're actually not entitled to it. And we're looking for some rule to be uh, amended for our sakes here. Um, but it's also true, um, I must add, for a lot of people, sometimes it's just this was days, there were no citizens advice uh, centres or anything like that. And sometimes it was the only place to go was your politician to in, even get some things that you were entitled to. So difficult was the system. But in terms of where Fianna Fáil were going with this, one of the problems was um, that the by-election causes them to change tack a little bit. Um, and And... That changes tack in terms of their economic policy. Again, going to Stephen Collins, quote, The political pressure of the Dublin West by-election in June 1982 forced the Hahi government to revert to its old form. There was a climb down on the budget arithmetic. Concessions were made to those paying higher PRSI rates. The building societies were given special concessions to head off a mortgage rate increase. And once again, the financial projections began to go off the rails, unquote. So again, here you see this, this idea of, you know, election, win it, get the seat, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, we'll deal with the problems after. And 
again, the financial projections begin to go a little bit awry here. But this is how he's modus operandi. There's no point in us uh, trying to say we're solving the problem if we lose power, because the only thing that matters is me getting into power, and then I'll do something about it. But how do I get there? How do I manage? That's the only navigation course that 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 he's following here. It's all about trying to get to that majority, and then you know maybe he'll do something. But that's about it. And this by-election, um, it comes at an interesting time because it does force a couple of different things to happen. Um, it also has repercussions, weirdly, for international relations and how things are, are, are going to develop <clears throat> with Northern Ireland as well. Uh, because, as you know, it's been a testing, tough relationship with uh, Margaret Thatcher and indeed between Charles Hockey, uh, but it hasn't much improved under Gareth Fitzgerald. Now Hockey's back, um, and of course smarting a little bit from all that had gone on before, um, and it was it was something again that begins to change in the elections because Britain uh, responds through the Falklands War to uh, an invasion, uh, as they see it, by Argentina of the Falkland Islands. Now, when they decide to do that, this becomes massive worldwide news. Uh, of course, there's all kinds of uh, reaction from people internationally and nationally, of course, at, at all times. But Hahi decides, strangely enough, that this is the moment he is going to reassert Irish neutrality. This is the moment he's going to make us uh, reaffirm just how neutral a nation we are. So I'm going to turn here to Noel Whelan, who just gives a, a little short background to this. As the crisis over the Falkland Islands developed and the British Armada sent to reclaim them reached South American waters, the Hahi government adopted a more neutral, some said crudely anti-British position. Ireland withdrew from the European community sanctions and at the United Nations called for an immediate cessation of hostilities and the retention of the status quo, i.e. Argentine occupation, until a resolution could be negotiated. If this stance was designed to assist Fianna Fáil's efforts in the Dublin West by-election, it proved counterproductive. On the 25th of May, the Fine Gael unknown Liam Skelly sensationally defeated Eileen Lamas. Three weeks later, the Fianna Fáil deputy for Galway East, John Callanan, died, further weakening the government's position. Unquote. Okay, so you have you have this kind of by-election. And here's a problem with this. Like, when you talk about Irish neutrality... Uh, Hockey was brilliant at always masking everything in some greater, bigger purpose. He would wrap the green flag round him when it needed to be, but usually at the heart of it, there's some grubby, domestic little issue he's getting around. Um, <clears throat> here you're going to see it again, because relations with Britain are, are in a particularly difficult position. Um, we've seen that in the previous podcast, we talked about the hunger strikes, and we see how little the Irish government is able to influence Britain to do anything positive in Northern Ireland because relations are so bad here. So actually Ireland is, is, is hampering its own ability to bring a positive impact to the North. 
um, because it's been shut out because of these poor relationships with Thatcher. But then at a time when, when the rest of the world is feeling, look, Argentina, you kind of you might even agree with your history and your idea of it, but kind of given that the people who live on these islands and the Falklands, what they're saying, given what Britain's claim on them, you can't just do what you've done. At this time, Ireland says, no, 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 we're withdrawing from the, the, the European sanctions. We're going to make a fuss at the UN. And all well and good if this was perhaps being done on some really deep ideological divide of, you know, Irish neutrality. And we're going to uh, be absolutely, um, you know, no negotiation on Irish neutrality. We're going to reassert this and that that was a big policy move. Perhaps even OK if this was out of some deep sense of anti-British imperialism that, you know, you should never have the Falkland Islands in the first place, yada, yada. But none of that is, this is really, essentially it's going to be about the by-election. You know, we know there's an anti-British thing out there. And we know there's a lot of hostility towards British vote, uh, uh, among British among voters. And let's talk it up. Let's do this and let's see if this helps in the by-election. It doesn't. Uh, backfires spectacularly. And now you have a situation where, of course, Ireland is completely offside with Britain. Even more so. So you're going to get these even worse relationships now. Um, with Thatcher, who is very unforgiving of all this, irrespective of what you think of, of whether it was a right or wrong decision. And some people out there still believe we should never have sided with Britain anyway, so it was all good. But these are the kind of issues that are creating hassle within the government. Now, all of that begins to... We've seen these these cracks in, in, in power, and we've seen these cracks in, in Fianna Fáil. And they're going to get a lot bigger in the coming months. Now, in the meantime, across the way, Fine Gael um, has been taking a little bit of a hit here in trying to understand just what, you know, has happened after the last election. But, you know, they, they, they felt they, they could go out, fight this on the basis of a, a budget. It didn't work out. Fianna Fáil managed to, to get back in power. But... As I mentioned there earlier, they get great hope from this by-election because the numbers are so narrow. They're beginning to think, we, we can take these guys out. And Fine Gael is no longer afraid here. I'm going to turn to, to just something Gareth Fitzgerald mentions, just to give you a sense of, of why Fine Gael aren't afraid here of, of elections and stuff in, in it. Um, in, in his book, The Reflections on the Irish State, Fitzgerald says, uh, quote, it was not until the 81 election that Fine Gael seriously matched Fianna Fáil's fundraising efforts, enabling it for the first time to challenge that party on something approaching equal financial terms in the three elections of 1981 to 82. Fine emergence at that time as a serious challenger to Fianna Fáil led to a gradual shift by business people away from contributions being based solely upon party loyalties of individual businessmen and towards a new system under which, in most cases, contributions were made by businesses to all the main parties, more or less proportionately to the size of those parties' dull membership, unquote. Now, <clears throat> there's an important thing, because these kind of things go unnoticed in the background. Um, Fine Gael has made these strides under Fitzgerald um, that, that since 77... Uh, when they were they were at a lower point, they they have since reorganized themselves. They have become a lot more professional. They have a lot better headquarters. They've had this stronger reorganization and approach to elections. 
um, their candidate strategy is way better. It's it's way better than Fianna Fáil's candidate strategy right now because they they've got a real sense of we have to do this in order to catch Fianna Fáil and we you know there has to be some self-sacrificing in here and they they get that culture within among candidates that's important but equally they're reorganizing things like financially and because they're coming close and they're looking like we are big as Fianna Fáil and we're we're able to project big in in that sense as well they're they're getting more of what oils the wheels of political parties which is money um now over the years going back to this period you're going to hear a lot about uh, money in politics because this is tough on parties um these elections one after the other but you can see here what Fitzgerald is saying there is you know look we were getting the money in to match fee and false we weren't going to be outspent here and and a change is happening because up to this point you know, you're a business, you're a Fianna Fáil man, you contribute to Fianna Fáil. That's it. If you're a Fianna Gael person, you contribute to Fianna Gael. But Fianna Fáil just had this bigger group, if you like, of, of people to, to, to reach out financially to. But it begins to change in the mindset as people begin to say, well, hold on, Fianna Fáil might not always be in power, even if I am a Fianna Fáil person. Perhaps it's best that I just give a few quid to Fine Gael as well. You know, keep everybody happy. And that's the new culture. Spread the money around a bit. You know, I might give the most to Fianna Fáil because they're the biggest party I can justify it. But I'll also give something to Fine Gael. So you're not getting cut out of those financial donations anymore. And that's important because now, financially, they're able to keep up. But just for a moment, pause, because... There is a point in all that financial thing too of how tough this was at this period. They they they're trying to stave off another election here. They've gone in, they've they've had these two elections at this stage, they've now had a by-election. This is getting tough. It really is draining the resources of the parties. And as we move through the year, you can see a tiredness, a tiredness within the parties at trying to find the resources here. And a lot of problems you're going to see later um, date back to some of this period where politicians themselves are getting themselves into serious debt and they're running into serious problems as they try to keep up with what is, I suppose, a spending culture at the time in order to win elections and yet struggling uh, to, to pay off those bills after. So having brought all of that um there's there's these problems begin to mount up and by-elections come in and parties are spending on these by-elections too. Now, an interesting thing happens uh, during the by-election because I mentioned there that Joe Callanan died um, as well at, at this point, uh, further weakening the uh, majority of the government. So it's getting really tight. Interesting thing, just going to turn to Noel Wheeler, who mentions a very interesting point in this. Quote, in late June, during the by-election to choose Callanan's successor, the former Fine Gael Minister for Justice, Jim Mitchell, claimed that when he had become Taoiseach in 1980, he had installed an override facility on the telephone system in government buildings that would have enabled him to listen to any calls made through the Leinster House Exchange. Hahi denied any knowledge of such a facility and an official and media investigations showed that Mitchell's accusation was groundless. Unquote. That's just an interesting little aside there because he's talking about 
1980 that that come in had this override facility on the phone systems and then people look at it and then say no there's, there's nothing in that um but it's an interesting accusation because we're not going to cover it in this podcast because the details of this don't become um into the 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 public until after the 1982 November 1982 election but at around this time there is something going on with phones and there is a uh, phone tapping going on um that's just typifies the government at this period where where Sean Doherty as minister for justice is tapping journalists phones now it's not found out uh, the fact that that's actually happening is not found out until after the election when uh, the new Fine Gael government reveals it. And, and that's why it's something I'm going to look at in, in the next podcast because it doesn't form the makeup of the November 1982 um, election. But what it does, or the reason it's worth mentioning now, is that there were these rumours of things, kind of things. Jim Mitchell was onto something um, that could be used. But all of this stuff just shows this this kind of approach to government that was quite chilling when you look at it and when you see it back now. And it's hard for us maybe to believe just how uh, acceptable it seemed to be within the corridors of power. Now, again, though, in the short term, it does lead to, to some kind of, I suppose, trying to get back on track once the, the by-election has been lost. And again, turn to Stephen Collins um, in from the power game. Quote, the defeat finally persuaded the government to heave McSharry by coming to grips with economic reality. Spending plans were cut and public service pay rises deferred, at least temporarily. By the autumn of 1982, the cabinet had for the first time begun to look realistically at the nation's finances and was developing a strategy for controlling public expenditure. This was published in October as the way forward. Unquote. Now, this is the moment where we finally begin to see somebody say, right, the the reality of this economy is not going to go away. Something has to be done. And and they are forced into sitting down and saying, come up with an actual plan that's going to work. Um and they decide, okay, we're going to use call this the way forward and to try and create something. Um something that that changes perceptions of um Fianna Fáil perhaps and and uh, of of its hold on on the economy, and maybe brings the major parties into into line with each other a little bit. Um, just to turn to uh John John Lee on this, uh quote, the way forward, largely the work of Porico Higgins, secretary of the Taoiseach's department, was published in October and committed the government to phasing out the huge deficit by nineteen eighty six. It seemed as if the profligate was at last donning the hair shirt, though simultaneously raising his eyes to the uplands in the distance if only the path of virtue were pursued, for the plan also assumed a 5% growth rate until 1987. It has to be assumed that the more optimistic projections were more the handiwork of politicians than of civil servants. Unquote. Now... <clears throat> What this suggests is, so, so okay, with this uh, plan, and it's probably still way too optimistic, but it's now starting to say, okay, we're going to take some really tough, difficult decisions. Um, Going to have to do that. 
has to be done for the country. I'm not going to run away from the reality of it anymore. But they throw in them. But you know what? We could have 5% growth all the way to 1987, which, of course, you know, dreamland. Um, but they begin to say this and say, you know, look, at, we can get there and then we'll get. So they're, they're trying to give the electorate something to cling to, to say it's only tough for a little time and then we're, we're all going to be good. Uh, but at least it is the first step here in, in what seems. So it seems probably that there were civil servants sitting somewhere going, oh, thanks be to God. You know, maybe we have finally got some of these guys in to kind of understand just what it is they have to do here. It's years going and everything is going out of control. Um, and that allows them to kind of say, right, you know, put the plan in place. And McSharry leads that at this point. But a number of other things are happening uh, at the same time. This is called Gubu. Um at this period, this it's it's the Gubu government, and we're coming to the Gubu election, um, and of course that is one of the things that that dominates all political uh, memories of this period that everyone talks about Gubu, um, so where did that come from? Well, I'm going to let let Stephen Collins uh, explain here. The term Gubu was a joint invention of Hahi himself and his fiercest critic, Conor Cruz O'Brien, when the country's most wanted murder suspect, Malcolm MacArthur, was arrested in the flat of the Attorney General Patrick Connolly in summer of 1982. Hahi used the words grotesque, unbelievable, bizarre and unprecedented in an attempt to explain the situation. O'Brien coined the acronym Gubu from Hahi's adjectives, and it came to signify the whole Hahi style of government in 1982. What you get here is 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 this period um, where everything is, uh, to be honest, grotesque, unbelievable, bizarre, and unprecedented. Um, now, of course, that comes from, and this is just another one of these little episodes. That kicks in. You 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 hear there the, the the mention of Malcolm MacArthur. So Malcolm MacArthur is has has murdered um a couple of people. He is on the run, um and the Gardaí are chasing it down over a period of a, a couple of days. So you can imagine in Ireland, particularly Ireland of nineteen eighty two, not that it would be any different, uh now, um, this guy he's murdered a a woman in Phoenix Park and. This this becomes um, a huge national story, uh, and you can imagine it. You can imagine it unfolding on the news. Where who where is the murder? Are they chasing it down? Who's doing? You know, but nobody knows who it is. Nobody knows anything about it. Now, in the meantime, MacArthur is on the run, um, and as 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 stories tell us, um, Patrick Connolly is the Attorney General. His girlfriend tells him, oh, look, there's this guy, Malcolm. He's sound, you know, yeah, he's fallen a bit on hard times and he told me he needs somewhere to stay. Uh, you know, would you mind, can he stay at yours for a while? And he thinks, oh, yeah, well, okay, yeah, I suppose, yeah, he seems like a decent enough guy, yeah. Look at you, fine, let him let him stay there. Uh, and in the meantime, what's actually happening is this guy's on the run um, and he's found, and when he's found, he's found, of course, in the apartment. Now, the Attorney General he was only doing a favour here. He's quite innocent in this by, by, by all accounts. He was kind of like, oh, I didn't know. I just thought he was a guy, you know, needed somewhere to stay for a couple of nights and he sorted himself out. Um, He didn't know him, Um, but but had taken on a recommendation of someone else who didn't know him that well, obviously. And this is all 
creates this, you know, you can imagine when a manhunt ends in the attorney general's apartment, you know, it becomes like, well, what the hell? Uh, and of course, people are wondering, is he involved? What's the story? All of that kind of thing. And of course, Patrick uh, Connolly has to resign as attorney general, uh, bringing in what is bizarre circumstances all in. And that's the kind of things that keep happening at this period. Really strange, bizarre. Uh, so Hahi is asked about this and of course he's charting a course because uses all these objectives to describe it and Conor Cruz O'Brien says, well that's goo-boo and it comes to signify not just this incident but everything because people begin to say yes it may describe that incident but it describes everything that's going on here. It's, what, how, do you, how do you look at this government and say <clears throat> uh, in so many of these issues that they're, they're anything other than grotesque, unbelievable, bizarre and unprecedented. Um, and this entire period in, in, in history is. <clears throat> but all of that is going to lead to greater difficulties within Fianna Fáil because Hahi's style of leadership keeps pushing buttons. And you can see, as I've, I've mentioned, some of those stories of where the, the, the problems are arising. And there are, again, still young firebrands. Now, you saw in our previous podcast how Charlie McCreevy had been on a journey where he'd wanted Charles Hahi in as leader to get control of the economy, very quickly became disillusioned with Hahi's inability to actually do what was needed on the economy, um, and now had ended up being quite a, a, a bitter opponent, if you like, of um, Hahi's he had, uh, as we saw at the at the end of the last podcast after the election, uh, been part of an abortive attempt by Des O'Malley uh, to get control of the situation and to, you know, uh, put a heave against Hahi, which many people thought maybe O'Malley was going to win, but came to absolutely nothing. Hahi had got control back. He was looking strong. McCreevy, though, was fed up. He was fed up at the way the party was being run. He was fed up still economically, even though Fianna Fáil were now beginning to get to, to some point on this. They, it was looking like just more of the same. More of the same from Charles Hockey and the party was never going to get uh, anywhere with, with this. So we end up um, with Charlie McCreevy deciding he is going to bring a challenge against uh, against Hahi himself. Uh, and he puts down a motion of no confidence in Charles Hahi that October. Um, and remember that McCreevy is just a backbencher, but he has a lot of respect in us. And he's been close to people like Des O'Malley, very close to people like Des O'Malley as a result of this. Uh, Des O'Malley's minister at this point uh, in, in the government. Um, he's also close to other ministers. He he's he knows and and would agree with a lot of what McSharry is doing, uh, economically. Uh, so he's close there. He's very very good friends with Albert Reynolds. So he's got a lot of the big beasts at cabinet like McCreevy, even if Hahi doesn't. And McCreevy's deciding he's going to he's had enough. Uh, he's had enough of the way Hahi runs things. He's had enough of what he sees in politics as, as being wrong and, and, and still sluggishly getting around on, on the economy. So he's going to table a motion of no confidence. And that catches a lot of people by surprise, including um, Des O'Malley himself. Uh, to turn to Dick Walsh from his book, The Party, uh, quote, 
The first O'Malley heard of the challenge was when his secretary in the Department of Industry and Commerce telephoned him in Spain. Minister, I thought you might like to know. But McCreevy's independent action forced the hands of both O'Malley and O'Donoghue, the leading dissidents in the cabinet. They refused to grant Hockey the support he demanded of all ministers and resigned on the night before the meeting at which the motion was to be discussed. That was the night of the long telephone calls, during which Hockey's lieutenants, the Northwestern Triumvirate of McSharry, Sean Doherty and Albert Reynolds, contacted deputies all over the country to inquire how they intended to vote. It was the first indication that the threat was being taken seriously. Other messages were delivered that night, which were not simple inquiries. In one case, a racehorse trainer, who was a substantial contributor to party funds, made the call. In another, it was a hotel owner in a southern town. A third call was made by a businessman who had dealings with a deputy engaged in manufacturing industry. The messages were similar. The callers were leaning on their local representatives to do the right thing. Subscriptions, services and business deals were at stake. Promotions were promised to some wavering backbenchers. Others were reminded of favours they had enjoyed. Friends, families and relatives were contacted and asked to exert their influence on stubborn TDs. One country deputy telephoned his wife and was told that several men had been sitting for hours outside the house waiting to talk to him. Neighbours in the resort where he had a holiday home called later to say that a carload of men was waiting for him there too. Next day, Hockey insisted on an open vote and McCreevy's motion was defeated by 58 votes to 22, unquote. Now again, just just think of that. This is, this is you know, the, the, the environment that, that you, you raise your head above the parapet and, and when... McCreevy feels here, I've had enough, I go for it. He catches O'Malley by surprise. O'Malley was not ready for a moment at that. Himself and Martin O'Donoghue are sitting at Cabinet. This wasn't the moment for them. But if you're going to put down a motion of confidence, they were going to treat it honestly and felt we have to go with it. We have to. And, and you know, yes, things are too bizarre and unprecedented to allow it continue. So how he demands everybody at Cabinet must support me. And these two guys say, well, no, we're not going to support you because it's just going to be dishonest to do it. So, no, we can't guarantee we're supporting you tomorrow. So they resign the night before the vote. That's two ministers down. Now this is serious. Now you've got a real challenge where your Cabinet's divided, where you've got um potential of people you know, going all kinds of different directions. Noticeably, though, Hahi can rely on that triumvirate, and particularly McSharry and Reynolds, also Sean Doherty. But these guys are good. These guys are good at getting the numbers and handling the heave. They know what they're at. And that holds firm. On this occasion, it holds firm that they are sticking by the party leader here. And that's crucial, because if one of them had gone then it could have been curtains. But once he's got them, he's got the, the ability to hold the party internally. And he then on the other side has this whole network of dodgy contacts um, doing stuff that is just, again, bizarre. That, that waiting outside, you know, people's houses, carloads of people, getting calls from people you might have business with and telling you, you know, by the way, I'm a Charlie supporter and if you don't, do the right thing for Charlie in the coming days. I, I might just not want to do business with you anymore. Um, or saying to you, you know, come on, we're your relatives, your friends. Come on, you know, don't, don't let Charlie down, you know. 
Now, all leadership challenges have those phone calls. All leadership heaves have got them. Um, I've been involved in a few of them myself in later years, you know, but never to this sinister, threatening kind of manner. And that was kind of seen as acceptable, kind of seen as the done thing. Uh, and then, as you say, maybe some of them are going to be told, you can be promoted, you know, if you're a thing. There could be a job in this for you after, if you back me. And then to somebody else, you remember that time I did that favour for you? Yeah, well, you know, you don't look after me now. We're going to come back to you about that favour. And maybe it's a kind of favour you don't want out there in the public that you'd asked for on behalf of somebody or got something done. So they've got this kind of network ties. It's, it's, it's Godfather-like. Um, and it's, it's, it's pulling all the strings together as part of this. And again, because of the personal divisions within the party, and you've, you've a lot of TDs here who are feeling a little bit like Fiona Fall is changing and, and becoming something they don't recognize. Um, so those TDs are all bundling in together. Now it begins to change. <coughs> As I say, with support of Hahi, not only through those, those let's say, tactics that he's got, or wide network of, of dodgy contacts on one level. On the other hand, he has stronghold within the party of some of the biggest, strongest voices who also know how to work the arithmetic of the heave. And that is Reynolds McSharry in there. But because Reynolds is good friends with McCreevy, you, you, you wonder about these divisions. And and I turned to, to Albert Reynolds' own words to figure out what maybe he would say on, on this. Um, just to give him the description, because in his biography, he also quotes extensively from Charlie McCreevy, uh, whose own thoughts in the, in the immediate aftermath of this, that explains something of the psyche of uh, Fianna Fáil. Um, so, quote, on 1st of October 1982, Charlie McCreevy put down a motion of no confidence in the second challenge that year to the party leadership. Des O'Malley, who had been away on holiday, flew back to support the motion, and both he, as Minister for Trade, Commerce and Tourism, and Martin O'Donoghue, the Minister for Education, decided to resign from the Cabinet and back McCreevy. I was sorry to go against Charlie, but again I felt compelled to support the Taoiseach. This time, though, the dissidents were more determined. They fought their campaign on the lowering of political standards, the mismanagement of the economy and the party's failure to win a majority in two successive elections. They called for a secret vote. Hahi insisted on an open roll call vote so that the dissidents could be identified and called for discipline within the party. The vote taken at the parliamentary party meeting was orderly. The conduct following it was not. The meeting went on most of the day and late into the night with McCreevy calling for a return to party decency and Hahi defending his position, insisting that his new manifesto, The Way Forward, had not yet been put into operation and given the chance to prove itself. When the vote was finally called, Charlie Hahi carried the vote by 58 to 22. Outside Leinster House, crowds of Hahi supporters, many of whom had been drinking all day, surged forward, and as Charlie McCreevy tried to make his way through to his car, he was pushed and abused both verbally and physically. Jim Gibbons, too, was attacked and hit to the ground. It was a shaming sight, a disgrace, and served only to further discredit Fianna Fáil. Looking back now, it seems such an extreme reaction to a party contest, but as Charlie McCreevy reflects, 
What I did in 1982, my outspokenness, was totally unheard of at that time. It's far easier now for fellows, but what I did then was unheard of in the Fianna Fáil party. We were a closely knit group, and that's how it had been for the previous 60 years. Consequently, the Fianna Fáil supporters, the organisation's members, were aghast and appalled at what I had done, because that was not the tradition of the party. It was still the old system of all for one and one for all. We kept things to ourselves. I was this independent fellow and I'd taken on the leadership, which was unheard of. Consequently, for very genuine reasons, lots of well-meaning people would gladly have taken me out and strung me up from the nearest lamppost. Even my own mother, had she been alive, would have come out against me because she was brought up in the tradition of Fianna Fáil and you just did not do that. Unquote. This is the so so there you see I mean you can sense from Albert Reynolds' words there first of all how you know he didn't want to go against McCreevy but felt he had to because you backed the leader you can also sense from how he's describing what went on after the vote a very big unease kicks in um at this point uh, between them um and and a really a really big problem begins to emerge in, in Fianna Fáil because a lot of people are getting uneasy and this is some of the people close to helping Hahi. Yet at the same time, Reynolds, along with McSharry, two of the people who helped to ensure Hahi survived at that point and, and kept him uh, in the role through their knowledge of, of, of how to work uh, that room and, and work that heave. This though does point to something else because some of these people in later years would suffer the same kind of things this was outrageous when you think of democracy i mean this isn't simple stuff this was was uh you know scenes that would shock anybody uh in terms of what actually happened outside the doll uh that day once mccreevy is put in there you know, people are, 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 the reaction to him, it's it's sheer hatred, certainly from the, the Hahi supporters. Now, McCreevy turns around there and he says, look, my own mother, she'd been alive, wouldn't have, have agreed with me. And I'll admit to you, I, I get that at, at this point because I come from that kind of background too. And I laugh sometimes in modern Fianna Fáil is talking about the cultish nature of other, because, you know, there was a cultish nature of Fianna Fáil. It was everybody's against us. Fianna Fáil didn't do coalitions. It was a party on its own. And and behind all this is a spirit of don't let the media, the media hate us. The media is out to get us. And we believe that in every, I mean, I grew up in, in this period and I remember our household and, and, and that was a feeling that everything, everybody in the media was just out to get us. Every newspaper, every TV station, everything. That was the spirit they were in. And when you then went against the leader and that you played into their hands, you played into Fine Gael who were just spouting stuff out and twisting history to their own ends. You were playing into the media who wanted to take us out and destroy Fianna Fáil. That was their only objective. That was the mood everybody had in, in Fianna Fáil. So the idea of McCreevy going against this and, and saying, yeah, I, I'm going to help them out by taking on the leader was just, no, you don't do that. If Fair enough, you want to give out. We can have lots of giving out, but you do that within a closed room where people on the outside of our party don't hear what we say inside. To do it publicly was not acceptable. Um, 
and and everybody was brought up in a tradition that you always stand by the leader, whoever that leader may be, you have to show your loyalty and you have to swallow bitter pills. That's what politics is about. You swallow the bitter pills, you stand by a leader, you stand by your party. The old Israeli quote of damn your principles, stick to your party. That was what permeated at this time. And McCreevy understood it. He knew, look, he, he spotted something that I think was, was going to take years for, for a lot of the rest of the party to catch up with. This unhealthy thing, this this change, and, and why we needed to speak out and change. But once you did that, you were on the outside and you all of a sudden, your character, everything was taken from you. Now, as McCreevy says, much easier nowadays for fellas, although I myself have to say, experience a little bit of it, nothing like quite like what they got, but a little bit of it when I first commented against Fianna Fáil, having been seen as somebody who was absolute Fianna Fáil zealot, to suddenly criticising the party at any point, And immediately, there was a certain culture of reaction to, well, you know, he never did anything anyway. And I don't know what you know about this and and, and the discrediting and that that goes on. Among some of your closest friends, as I would have experienced it, is really tough and isolating when it happens. Because you lose. What you're losing, what McCreevy is risking here, is not just a political opinion. Politics at this stage, and, and I described this in the early episodes of, it's your social grouping, it's your party, it's your friends, it's everything, you, you, it's your life, it's what you do, it's the people you hang out with. To go against them, to fall out with them over these things is to isolate yourself in the community. You're now cutting yourself off and you're losing some people and times, things you're used to doing, people you're used to seeing. You lose it all in that instant you step outside the party. And, and it's an incredibly lonely experience uh, uh, for anybody that, that does it. And McCreevy's experiencing that at this point. But what's worse is that it's also true within the party at this time. These aren't normal contests. You know, you have this contest and then there's, you know, not just accepting the results as we're used to maybe today in it. You have this absolute shocking scenes outside of, of uh, Leinster House. I mean, you heard that they're being described um, um, by Albert Reynolds as, as what happened. Also, look at um, Stephen Collins on this uh, to, to describe it. Uh, quote, McCreevy was chased across the car park, kicked and jostled and called a bastard and a blue shirt. The Gardaí helped him to get into his car, but the crowd surrounded it, banging on the roof and shouting insults as he drove away through the Kildare Street gates of Leinster House. Disgraceful scenes marred the Hahi victory last night when former minister Jim Gibbons was punched outside of Leinster House and Charlie McCreevy had to leave under Garda protection, reported the Irish Independent political correspondent Chris Clennon. Gibbons denounced a Nazi fascist element in Fianna Fáil, unquote. This... I mean, just in case you think this this kind of stuff, you know, was 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 oh yeah, they're they're kind of reacting and they're they're saying there's a bit of shouting going on. Um, Jim Gibbons, you heard there was punched. He was knocked to the ground. They had the guards and the 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 ushers had to dive in to save him in the crowd. Um, and shortly after, uh, he suffers a very severe heart attack. Uh. And and in a weird way, Hahi with such a slim majority losing Jim Gibbons now um is is a 
massive, massive blow. He also loses Bill Lucknan um, in, in Clare. And, but, you know, in a weird way, just the, the, the Gibbons thing coming back to haunt those hockey supporters who did that uh, just just shows you how these things backfired continually on hockey. But that's how serious this was. I mean, for the people involved, this was pretty terrifying. They came out of Lenser House and they were absolutely physically abused. I mean, this was life-threatening stuff. And, and you think about it, it's a party political contest. You know, we should be able to have these all the time. But this is, you know, there's something not wrong about Gibbons talking about the, 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 the fascist element there. There's something not wrong about the shock uh, that the media are reporting in this because there's something completely new in politics here. Something completely unhealthy in that approach. And it was. It's disgraceful now. I mean, it is hard for us maybe to imagine that they were the scenes that would go on. But again, we're not talking about 1930s or 40s here, you know, before media or anything else. We're not talking about a time when, oh, we'd just come out of, you know, civil war and then there's, you know, punch-ups at something. We're talking about a time when we were a modern society. Uh, we weren't that different to what we are now. And many of us alive today were alive then. And it wasn't that wildly different. Yet, we know what we think if we saw those kind of scenes today. Uh, so it was shocking. But Hahi has ultimately tightened his grip on power as a result of winning that vote. There's a gang of 22, they've become known as now, who are the dissidents. Um, and they're known as the dissidents, uh, but they can be ignored and how he can get back to business as he sees it. All was not going to be so simple, though, um, because in this new economic plan, the way forward, there were tough decisions to be taken. Um, necessary tough decisions. But again, we go back to this really dodgy arithmetic that Charlie Hockey now has. He's lost TDs from by-elections. Uh, he's had another TD with a severe heart attack. He is, his, his majority is effectively bust. Um, and the Workers' Party decides at this point, you know what, we're not entirely uh, agreed on this, a lot of the measures in the way forward. Understandably, because for them, it was selling out of a lot of their base too in, in some of those tough decisions, things they couldn't stand over. Um, so they decide to withdraw support. That scuppers everything. Now we have the grounds for the November 1982 election. That's the environment it suddenly comes into. We have this, this proposal. We have general agreement maybe of the parties, but we also have <clears throat> still the difficulty in actually implementing it. It was one of those situations where... I suppose, look, you might say, well, just as they were going to do something, but you know what? They always do it too late anyway. And how he had always managed to push um, so much, um, he, he had pushed so much back in time in order to try to get through by-elections and other things. And again, these things are coming home to roost now. So 
once that support's withdrawn, you have this huge problem now for how he he's not going to get this through. He's he's he now doesn't have a government. On the other side you have Finnegal who are ready. And they are ready now. They see the moment and say, we can table a motion of no confidence, bring down the government, get to an election, and maybe we can do something um, that, that is, is uh, you know, we can offer some more stability. Uh, and in a way, they could, um, because this isn't going to go away in, in, in the short term. Um, and there's a lot of difficulty across all the parties and how they're going to handle it. But Fianna Fáil know that with the Workers' Party withdrawing their support from the government, they're on notice now in the next couple of weeks of that motion and no confidence is going to, how they're going to, to overcome it. Now, there is talk that uh, Brian Lenahan is sent to have some, some talks with, um, uh, or Brian Lenahan and uh, Bertie Hearn, uh, have to sound out Labour Party, but Labour Party are saying no, no, we're not supporting you in this, um, you know, major bed lying it. But there's a couple of interesting things happen, uh, across the way. At again, Fianna Fáil have no control over, and that they're going to suffer from here. Go back to Finnegal here. So what you've got is, as we say, Finnegal financially been been able to hold up with Fianna Fáil, although they are suffering the effects of the election. Perhaps, at least to them, Fianna Fáil aren't getting away from them financially on it either. So that's a help. They're well reorganised within it and they're expecting that they can hold these seats. Um, and it's those seats and, and, and Fine Gael's ability to organise that's going to win them this election. Because as they come to it, Fine Gael immediately starts to prepare and starts to prepare in a way of, of ensuring... A lot of self-sacrificing and a lot of discipline. Um, turn to Gareth Fitzgerald, a comment on this again from, from his uh, reflections on the Irish state. Quote, In the case of Fine Gael, a combination of tight discipline and remarkable unselfishness by some candidates involving vote-splitting agreements in key constituencies actually enabled that party in November 1982 to win with fewer votes than Fianna Fáil the three or four extra seats needed to put them in government for a period of over four years, unquote. Now, here's the thing. Fine Gael have cottoned on here to something, which is you need to have strong vote management in constituencies. You can't just have free-for-alls, fellas running and pulling votes from here, there and everywhere. And that requires, the problem with that is it requires real discipline that you stick to your area if you've divided up an area in a constituency between two your candidates, because this is a problem in multi-seat constituencies, two or three from the same party running, give them an area. you got to get candidates to stick to it. If they don't and they think, oh, well, we want a free-for-all where I can go in and get votes from there, you will get a candidate who will storm ahead. But then that candidate will not get enough transfers back down because people don't stay on the party line. They'll vote one person for the party and then they feel I've done my duty to the party. So it's only the core party vote that continues to vote for the party all the way down. There's another vote which is very important that feels I have to vote for this party. But um, once I've given that person my number one, I can go where I like with my number two, three, four. Rather than I must vote the party one, two, three, four. So, in order to keep that vote, the less candidates you run, the better in many constituencies. Or if you have to run an extra candidate for geographic purposes, that you're very strong 
uh, vote transfer packs and arrangements and the areas are divided up neatly. And Fine Gael, again, Gareth Fitzgerald there mentions this unselfishness and, and that's what's required here because very often it means people not getting the glory of going over at the top of the poll. Uh, but maybe waiting till the last seat. And there have been celebrated incidents of this all the time. Too many to get into individually. Might be its own podcast on, on vote management at some point might be uh, demanded. But what you often see are politicians who, you know, could be storming ahead. Instead, you're balancing good, solid packs of votes and people get elected without reaching the quota sometimes or just enough to get over but they get the two or three seats, whereas another party has a much bigger share of the overall vote, but they get one candidate storming ahead and the other candidate way too far behind to take the second seat. Better off with two closely balanced together. Fine get that at this point. And some TDs are going to feel that they have to be unselfish, maybe even risk losing their seat in order to get there. But that's the desire, and it's easier in Fine Gael right now because they're under pressure from Fianna Fáil. They want to try and overcome uh, this this second-rate status that they've had. So they're willing to do this and make that sacrifice uh, in a way perhaps that, that Fianna Fáil is not. So we go into an election, uh, and it's an election again where... Fine Gael and Gareth Fitzgerald have, we saw in the previous podcast, they'd identified that, look, while Hahi seemed to be bringing it back, they still felt there was a Hahi factor and they felt this was worth talking about. And in this election and over these months, they are hammering this home time and time again. Hahi is not a normal politician. These are not normal circumstances. This is goo-boo. And they hammering that home. They're saying to people, like, really? You know, if you have any doubts here, how can you vote with Hahi? Uh, and that's going to create a real problem for Fianna Fáil because it is becoming about personality and it is becoming about trust as well. Um, and that's just the couple of percent Fianna Fáil can lose that's going to cost them elections because there are very tight margins as it stands. So... One of the other interesting things, though, that happens is within the Labour Party. Because the Labour Party have been trying to, as you've seen, they've, they've been in government in the 70s, out, try to get their own path going again. Then suddenly they're out again, uh, they're back in, in government again, then they're out and Labour's vote is not moving here. They're not making a breakthrough. And a large part of it is Labour is struggling it's struggling to identify itself in this new era, this new political area. It's it's still stuck at a time when large part of the party is still stuck back when the, the, the late 60s, when they were saying the 70s will be socialist. Didn't happen, but, you know, they still believe, well, maybe the 80s will be socialist and we've got to be hardline socialism. And um, They're not getting much traction for that, but that side of, of the party is still there. There's another part that want to be in government and just doing things and... and they're very much torn and they're still searching for their modern identity at this point. And then something interesting happens at this point because their leader is Michael O'Leary. And Michael O'Leary here for Labour is saying, look, you know, we've got to get back in and we've got to do things on the economy. Um, We've got to have a, a coalition with uh, Fine Gael. And he does what, what seems a reasonable enough thing. He says, look, we have a pact with Fine Gael. We're going to go into government with Fine Gael. We have that deal. Um, 
simple as and he puts that to the party and says expects you know look as party leader that's where we're going um the labor party though rejects that and they reject it with a bit of good sense because they begin to say look we're always suffering from this association fine we might have a preference for Fine Gael because maybe that's the only realistic way Fianna Fáil don't do coalitions so the only way we're going into government is with Fine Gael. But no, we don't want to be that close to them. So, no, you, you, we're not having any kind of agreement that we're just going in with Fine Gael. And if you get a deal uh, after an election, you must come back and run it past a party conference. Now, that's probably something, again, that modern times we're well used to, but it's, it's unusual at this time to be suggesting it. And and it does undermine Michael O'Leary's uh, leadership um, of, of the party. Um, and this is going to cause him a few problems because Michael O'Leary then says, well, if you're not going to follow me on this, I think that's nonsense. I'm leaving. And he walks out. Now, this is at a time when we're, we're in the jaws of... A general election and people sense it they know it they know the problems are there now and labor loses it's 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 so typical and very labor uh for that to happen you know you just think oh, you know right when you would need to be going into this with some sense of unified purpose what do you do you end up uh you know losing your leader and that is you know it it was it it should have and could have been disastrous for, for Labour. And, and I let Noel Whelan, in, in a comment he makes on this, um, take up here, quote, A few weeks before the election was called, the Labour Party leader, Michael O'Leary, not only resigned, but defected to Fine Gael when his party conference rejected his proposal for a coalition agreement. Dick Spring, the 32-year-old former Irish rugby international, became leader and the party declared it was not committed to any coalition agreement, although it generally assumed that it favoured going back into government under Fitzgerald. Unquote. So Michael O'Leary says, you know, look, if you're not doing this, I want to go in, I want to deal with Fine Gael, I want to put a clear proposal before the people, yada yada. Others in Labour have come to the realisation the more you do that, the less chance there is for us in an election to actually be seen as a separate party. We just become part. And they're right about that. They will just become mini Fine Gael. We've seen it time and time again. You will see in other elections, this debate always happens and you will see how it always transpires that way. But right now, they want to be more than little Fine Gael because they've suffered that already in the election. So they say, yes, we can agree that we possibly prefer to be with Fitzgerald and Fine Gael, yes, but we don't have to be making this rock hard deal. O'Leary walks out. Um, now, you heard there, defected to Fine Gael, um, which is an interesting one because he does defect uh, to, to uh, Fine Gael and it's, it's one of those strange episodes. Uh, and it's recounted by Katie Hannan in her book, The Naked Politician. Um, and she says, uh, quote, Michael O'Leary had resigned as leader of the Labour Party in October 1982 after his party's annual conference voted against involvement in a further coalition without prior approval by a special party conference. He decided to in instead to embark on a personal coalition arrangement of his own. On the evening of O'Leary's successor Dick Spring's election as Labour leader, Gareth Fitzgerald answered a ring at his front door to find the former Labour leader on his doorstep. 
as Fitzgerald recalled the happy occasion in his autobiography. He walked in and told me he wanted to join Fine Gael. And that, apparently, was that. Fitzgerald knew that his entry to the party would cause some short-term problems with the Labour Party, but decided that this could hardly be grounds for refusing so senior a politician the Fine Gael whip. Unquote. So what you have is the leader of the Labour Party has gotten a huff about the party not going with him, walks out and then says, right, do you know what, um, I'm still committed to this. And, and here's one of the things that infects Labour right throughout their time. There is a certain core that would be so anti-Fianna Fáil and so that they, they would happily be in Fianna Gael and that's all that mattered. And here you're seeing one of those kind of situations. This guy says, well, I'm going to join Fianna Gael. And he walks across, goes to Garfield's Fitzgerald's house and says, I want to be in Fianna Gael. And, and now, now, Labour, on the other hand, are electing a 32-year-old. This guy is, in political terms, a child is about to be elected Labour leader. Um, you know, a rugby international, no real experience. You know, it, uh, you know he, this guy is, has come back and he's thrust into to this position. He's popular, he's young, he's, he's articulate, but no. You know, you don't make him leader of the party among the, the big guns that are out there at this point in time. And that's what Labour are doing. Meanwhile... Their own leader and said, bye bye, I'm in Fine Gael now. That must have felt for some people like, is this an end for Labour? Is this a, a you know, what kind of a disaster is this? What kind of, to imagine it happening now is quite difficult. But what's going to transpire, and interesting to look forward here a little bit from the, the Labour perspective as we go through this election, because in a few weeks, this government falls. We're forced into an election. And in those few weeks, Dick Spring, this child, 32 years of age, going in as leader of the Labour Party, will become Tarnishta. Meanwhile, Michael O'Leary will become a footnote in history because he joins Fine Gael, but it becomes really apparent quickly you can't give him, having walked out in Labour, Labour are not going to agree to him being in a cabinet post. And Fine Gael can't make him, Gareth Fitzgerald cannot appoint him as a minister. So on such small decisions can entire careers hinge. One of the things we look at in future, because one of the things that this means for Labour is that they have to find their identity. But under this new young leader, they start to do that. And there are some dramatic changes coming to the Labour Party. Uh, because Dick Spring is not going to continue with this ideologically divided, weak party that's unable to find its space in the modern Irish landscape. He's determined to compete with the big boys, find that space, and he's going to do it, and he needs to get rid of anything holding them back and reshape the Labour Party. Uh, and he's going to do that with gusto. Uh, and we're going to see that in future podcasts as to, to how and when and why he, he does that. So the election goes on. And, and you know, this is an election that uh, it's, it's a dour election, to be honest. It's low key. Um, you know, Whelan described it as a depressing election. 
Uh, and it was, you know what, the country had had enough, it had had enough of elections, it had had enough of the debates, it, the parties were running out of money, the TDs were running out of money, the campaign itself is a dour, boring affair. Uh, they have a debate. The debate was between Hockey and Fitzgerald. Interest, the only thing of real interest in that debate is the fact that the debate centres mainly around can we increase taxes more or, you know, does it all just have to be cutting spending? And that's what the debate kind of goes around. Now, you know, to be honest with you, we know what the transpire is a lot of raising taxes more we're still not ready for those tough decisions but that becomes one of the things that's in there because it's become one of Fianna Fáil's mainstays now the way forward is going to become an election manifesto um, because that becomes the kind of thing that 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 gives them credibility on the economy and Fine Gael can't really criticize the way forward um, as it is um, because, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in there, a lot of stuff they're going to have to do. So the only thing they can disagree on is that maybe we can talk about putting up taxes rather than all of the spending cuts. But but that's minor enough in the scheme of things. Generally, we're kind of agreed. So instead, Fine Gael decide, look, let's not get into a big economic argument like we did. They've learned from the, the February election. There's not much point here, particularly if Fianna Fáil are now coming around to a strong position on the economy too. Best thing we can do is who do you trust, Fitzgerald or Hahi? And they're gambling and, and they're proven to be right to a degree that in that they can edge a couple of percent off Fianna Fáil because certain people are not going to trust uh, Charles Hahi at this point or there's enough question marks asked over him. Now, there are things that begin to change um, within the parties. Just to look at on the ground, because I mentioned this thing about the unselfish nature of politics and, and how Fine Gael come in this election to having really strong vote management, understanding how they were going to, to do that. That's a marked contrast to Fianna Fáil at this point, who have a lot of big egos, a lot of big stars, if you like, jostling for position. And again, just to touch on on an insight into that on the ground and again into some of the dodgier elements that are going on in politics here because again covered here by Michael Clifford and Shane Coleman their book Bertie Hearn and the Drumcondra Mafia as they talk about the experience of of this election uh, from Bertie Hearn's uh, point of view and his team quote the general election marked the first time the tensions between Hearn and Collie were aired prominently in the national media on the day of the general election there was open hostility between the two sides both were represented at most polling stations in the constituency the Irish Times reported the next day that one group handed out leaflets on behalf of the official Fianna Fáil slate, while the other stood some distance away, openly canvassing only for Mr Colley. These were the first fights between rival groups outside the polling station in Marlborough Street at the back of O'Connell Street. A brawl happened after a Fianna Fáil official stepped in. Eyewitnesses recounted that the Collie man was dragged to the ground while an attempt was made to strip him of the offending leaflets. Less serious confrontations between the factions were witnessed at other polling stations. From conversations with those involved at the time, it is clear that heated exchanges between the competing teams of the canvassers were common. One senior figure from the Collie camp recalls an incident outside a polling station in Drumcondra on one of the election days during that period. 
Teams of canvassers from Fine Gael Labour and the Collie Camp were making their pitch to voters on their way in. At around 8pm, a van pulled up. We were on one side, Labour and FG on the other, the Collie supporter said. Six or seven of these black suits got out with Herm posters. They blocked us up and we couldn't go away. Pat Collie, Georgia's son, was seriously put out. Their language was appalling. We were told to fuck off. We couldn't move in front of them. Michael Keating, the Fine Gael candidate, said to one of ours, it's not FG or Labour you have to worry about, it's them, Ahern's people. Such friction was by no means confined to Dublin Central. In the heat of a general election, incidents occur all the time between rival supporters, but there was no disguising the animosity of some exchanges. Nevertheless, some of the tricks Ahern's team got up to were a lot more innocent. During one of the election campaigns, two members rang Collie's headquarters and left the phone off the hook all day, making it impossible for any calls to be made or received. Such pranks notwithstanding, there was no question that the Ahern team generally played by big boy rules. Tony Kett, Ahern's close friend, gave a clear insight into their thinking in an interview with journalists Ken Whelan and Eugene Masterson for their book Bertie Ahern, Taoiseach and Peacemaker. When the election machine went into action, it was purely for Ahern. We have some leeway now, but in the early days we were ruthless. Other Fianna Fáil candidates would complain about the way we ran things. We just ignored them. We were determined to run De- Dublin Central and we were determined that nobody, not even our own people, in, got, in our own party would get in our way. Even in our first election we ignored warnings not to go into Jim Tunney's area and we made forays there all the time. We succeeded and we still run the constituency in the same way today. Anybody who says otherwise doesn't know what they're talking about. This is borne out by other Fianna Fáil figures from Dublin Central. They wouldn't stop at anything, particularly in the heat of the action. They'd stand on your head. It's not vindictive. They believe what they're doing is right, was how one close observer put it. Unquote. So you see there, and, and, and look, in that sense, it's building of this Bertie Hearn's own legendary machine. And, and there was necessary elements in that young candidate cutting out a space for himself. But you can see that that's the move Fianna Fáil are in this election. But I mean, we're still talking about brawls and fist fights. We're still talking about, you know, going into each other's areas and being proud of that. I mean, vote management doesn't exist. Fine Gael, on the other hand, are united. They're strong. They're strongly in support of Fitzgerald. They don't have that division and they know what they've got to do on the ground. They've got to be a little bit self-sacrificing uh, in it. So the high factor is kicking in during this election and it's going to hurt um uh, it's going to hurt Fianna Fáil. Again, turning back to, to Albert Reynolds and his view of, of this election. Quote, another election, another campaign. It was called for 24 November 1982. We all knew it was an election too far and that the general public would hold Fianna Fáil to blame. And they were right. Too many shotgun elections and changes of government prevented the country from moving forward. There was little heart in it especially as there were few differences in policy between the main parties and the dominating issue of the day, the economic crisis. The Hahi factor and his style of leadership served only to blight our campaign. In the end, although I once more topped the poll in Longford and was elected on the first count, Fianna Fáil was decisively beaten, down six seats in just 18 months. Gareth Fitzgerald became Taoiseach in coalition with Labour, Dick Spring became Taunishta, and I returned to the opposition benches as spokesman on industry. It was one of these campaigns, just unquote there, Albert Reynolds, that was his, his view of, of the campaign on, on the ground for him. 
But you can sense that tiredness, that tiredness with the elections. The Look, we've all got to a point where we know what something has to be done on the economy. And this becomes not really about the economic issues, although it should have been, because we're still going to have problems in the years ahead, as we'll see, about elections and about, you know, how the economic handling. But because we all feel we've got to this general point, it becomes more about the Hahi factor for Fine Gael. And in the meantime, Hahi is pushing more of this anti-British agenda. He decides to go back to that during the campaign and starts throwing out the anti-British lines, brings up the Falklands thing again, and begins to say, you know, look, uh, you can trust me, the, the, the one who is, I suppose, got this... Uh, he, he this nationalistic approach and he tries to see that that will see him over the line um it's one of these these weird elections because the public don't want us everyone's tired of it the campaign is lackluster itself money is lacking but they all go there anyway uh, and just to 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 wrap up when the the election result with with John Lee here uh quote Hahi suffered a severe setback in the election. Fianna Fáil's share of the vote fell from 47.3% to 45.2%. Fine Gael's climbed from 37.3% to 39.2%, while Labour rose slightly from 9.1% to 9.4%. In terms of seats, Fianna Fáil lost six, while Fine Gael gained seven and Labour won. When Fitzgerald and Spring cobbled together a joint programme for government after the election, Fitzgerald became Taoiseach with a clear working majority. With Fine Gael's 70 seats and Labour's 16, the government had 86 seats out of 166. The country could anticipate its first period of stable government for some years. Fitzgerald seemed to have got what both Hahi and he himself had hitherto been denied, a safe majority. It remained to be seen what he would make of it. Unquote. So... The election comes in and and unlike the previous one, this wasn't a gamble election. It was perhaps the unavoidable election. But maybe the, the, the early 80, the, the, the election in, in 1981 could have been avoided by Hahi, you know, if he'd, he wanted. Um, certainly the February uh, 82 election could have been avoided if they'd just found that uh, money that was down the back of the sofa that the, the incoming government found. This election probably was unavoidable because of a number of factors. It had been economically a time when they had to come in and and you had to put forward proper proposals in front of people. But secondly, the style of government that was there under Hahi. Hahi had still not learned how to really run a government, how to be a true leader and was still operating more like a mafia boss than an actual uh, leader of a country and, and a political party, which is what he needed. And, and he's going to take some chastening in opposition that may help to shape his future, but he's also going to face a serious challenge now. And he knows it. He knows it because he's only just survived. He's only just got through. And now he's lost another election. He's out of power just as soon as he was back in. Meanwhile, the country has an opportunity to trust that Fine Gael might just have an answer. Because Fine Gael now has what Hahi didn't have. They have this safe majority between two parties, Fine Gael and Labour. Labour 
a different beast now. They know kind of what they're getting into. This young leader is, is about to take on a lot of reforms of Labour Party. They know where they're going with this, though. They know the state. This isn't like when they came in in, in 1981 and went, holy crap, didn't realise the economy was like that. They're well aware. So everybody has reached a, a point where civil servants must be breathing a sigh of relief and saying, well, look at whoever comes in. They grasp what has to be done here. Um, now, the problem is some debate exists and will exist for this government on in exactly how to get to that end result. We know what we've got to do. We've got to change how we're spending and we've got to change uh, how we come into living within our means, if you like. But... There's still this question, as was evidence in the TV debate between Hockey and Fitzgerald, are you going to tax more? Or are you really going to take on the spending side of things? And that's going to be the one they're going to grapple with, uh, that's going to dominate them. But they do know that whatever choice they make, once Fitzgerald and Spring can keep an agreement, they have a safe majority to actually take decisions and they can do some stuff early and perhaps reap the benefits in later years there is a real feeling at this point when we come out of the 82 that depressing election you get a real sense of maybe we finally this is what it took it took these couple of elections for us to actually end up with a situation where you have a comfortable majority government and it's taken Fine Gael a bit of a journey to get to a point where it could electorally compete with Fianna Fáil uh, in terms of its vote management and in terms of its finances that would allow it to come close enough in seats to go into a coalition with, with uh, Labour and then have that safe majority. Because in the previous elections, Fine Gael would not have got that return on seats and, and would still be in a weakened position. Now they had... There is an ambition for uh, Fine Gael now. I mean, when they come back, uh, Fine Gael have 70 seats. You know, they have Fianna Fáil in their sights. They have Fianna Fáil within their sights in terms of being able to become the largest political party in the state. And Fitzgerald knows now, organisationally, we're strong enough to do this. And he probably sees this as an opportunity coming out of this election as we do this right in government, we can actually take Fianna Fáil out. And Fianna Fáil is, is now in serious trouble because Fianna Gael are breathing down their necks in terms of how their, their, their seat returns here. Uh, Fianna Fáil is still getting these massive votes. I mean, 45% of the vote, yet they lose six seats because of that, that couple of percent down from 47%. But you know what, in later years, when Fianna Fáil cottons on to this vote management idea, Fianna Fáil will be getting even greater numbers of seats uh, than they got in this election on 40% of the vote. If they were vote managing, they should have been dominating this election, but they weren't. And you can see those kind of things that were going on on the ground. You can see the divisive nature of politics, politics within Fianna Fáil that's crippled them at this point. And all of that stems back up to one man at the top, which was Charles Hahi. But Fine Gael know they have the chance to actually overtake Fianna Fáil now while they're in this moment of weakness. And Fianna Fáil are going to possibly tear themselves apart and, and Fitzgerald knows that. Labour know that they've got an opportunity now to reform politics 
for themselves to cut out a real market for a new Labour Party, a new vision that's able to adapt within this reality that they face, knowing they've got these two big parties, but playing by the same rules, able to craft their own space. But they're going to have a little bit of internal wrangling and reorganisation now. But you know what? They've breathing space to do it. Because once parties don't have to have these incessant elections, once there's a government with a safe majority, now we can get back to the business within our own parties and, and sort some of that stuff out. And that's what they're going to do. In the meantime, we're left with a feeling from the, the independence, the Gregory deal uh, still goes down in history as debated as one of those points where... Fitzgerald will argue it was auction politics and he's he's going to leave people with a bad taste for independence in it. And of course, on the other side, so many saying it was absolutely the only disgrace was that it was so necessary for such a deal to happen in order just to see that kind of investment in an area of our capital city that needed it. They're the kind of debates that are going to, but independence take a bit of a, a, a a blow for a while here because they become seen as, uh, yeah, it's constituency stuff and they're only just claiming their cut of the pie and we should all have higher ideals than that and of course that becomes one of the things out of this period people want to talk about the higher ideals of society doing things in the national interest in future podcasts you're going to hear that phrase what is the national interest and and you know one of the interesting things out of all these is there's always this debate with parties that somehow you know you hear every so often you know, put your country before the party. You know, that's that's what we've got to do here. And and I'd love to be, it's a statement that people love to make, business people love to make and say, you know, like there's some right way of doing things. And of course, everybody just agrees on the right way. Of course there isn't. Because if you're a left-wing party, someone telling you to do a right-wing thing and say, well, you do that for the good of the country, forget your party. No, because if you believe in the left-wing ideal, then... It's not for the good of the country if your party's ideas, either you accept that your parties actually have merit or if your party's ideas have no merit, why the hell are you in that party? Everybody who's in a party believes that their approach to things is best for their party and therefore their party survival is the best thing for the country. If you don't believe that, you shouldn't be in a party. If you believe that, well, I kind of believe in a party, but to be honest with you, I could sell out anything our party says or would do or the advantage for our party because I think there's a higher ideal over here which is the country well then why don't we all just do the country thing all the time and do away with political parties altogether if everything they say is such nonsense that can be bartered uh, on the shrine of the national interest it's a fallacy uh, one that I think begins to come apparent here there isn't a th- an idea of something that can be bartered away. Parties do have to look to their own survival because people who are in them have got to believe in that party. And that's where the struggle comes in because you've got to amend policies to what you believe it should be. There can't and won't be one right way of doing things. And even in this time, everybody does know there are certain rules that apply. You can't keep spending money you don't have. They know that in this economy. All parties have come round to that way of thinking, but there's still different ways of implementing that. Yes, you can come to saying, well, this is something that just has to be done, but you have to find a way around it, and it's your job in your party to find how you get your policies through, while at the same time dealing with what are recognised agreed problems. It's taken them several elections to get to agreeing what the problem is here, 
And the problem is, quite simply, the same thing he had put out in that famous speech, living way beyond our means. We are putting out a lot more than we're taking in. And you can't continue. It's that simple. And Ireland has to face up to that. We either need to take in an awful lot more or we need to cut out what we're putting out. That's the approach. They're the decisions that have to be made. But the problem is, it's not just one decision, as in spending and tax, spending or tax. It becomes a myriad of small decisions on each little policy area. What can you cut? What can you then add a tax to? How do you balance these two things? And it's all part of, of an experiment. But one thing that seems to have disappeared, at least by this point, is the idea that Ireland was going to have some miracle stimulus package uh, of cutting taxes or uh, pumping money into the economy that was going to change things. And that at least is a positive uh, that they have. So that's where the 1982 election, uh, November 1982 election leaves us. For the first time in quite a few years, we have a stable government, a government that now people feel can deal with the problems, a government that should be there for the long term. The parties now begin to look to themselves internally and say, right, what do we need to do? What are the big issues and problems that we're going to, to, to have to grapple with? But at the same time, while that relief is being felt in Ireland of finally getting a government, getting out of this hassle, getting out of something that, you know, is there, uh, has been hanging over them, it still leaves us with a sense of now the work is only beginning. So now we've got the government, it's got the majority. What are you going to do with it? What kind of Taoiseach is Gareth Fitzgerald going to be? He's the guy we've been told we can trust more than Hahi. He's honest. That's what we're told here. We're told he's 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 good on the economy. He's he's reliable. Labour, you know, they're going to look after people on the left. How is it all going to work out? It's told it's going to be a government of reform and change, but stability is the big word. They've finally got that stability. Gubu is over. Now, how do the parties shape up in actually dealing with serious issues? And what can the people expect? Well, we're going to step away from uh, November 1982. And next week, we will be back where we're going to look at some of those questions. And we're going to look at what happened um, in the immediate aftermath uh, of those and what led Ireland to its next big election. So that's it for this week. Thank you once again for tuning in. Uh, thanks again to Car Communications for access to the library, which I have had to bring home with me for the most part, um, because of course we are recording this at a time when um, the coronavirus has forced offices to work remotely. Um, so. Uh, all of those books uh, that I've needed have, have travelled with me. I'm glad to say they allowed me the, the opportunity to do that too. Um, I hope everybody out there stays safe at this time in a, what is a bizarre time for uh, us as a country. Um, and in a way, when we're looking back at these elections of previous national challenges, um, 
and and how difficult it is to get that feeling of solidarity perhaps it's something to to be mindful of right now that there is such a sense out there at the moment of of solidarity and people trying to stick together and you know some of the things we're looking at some of the economic problems in these elections and our public servants and the pay rises and the, the spending all of these things are things that affect our services and for things for decades to come and of course the things we're still working through today and and we're seeing problems and and perhaps hope uh, born out of some of the solutions and some born out of some of the the things that were not resolved from those periods so it is perhaps an opportune time to look at, at how we got here but I do appreciate you listening in. Um, I would really appreciate it if you've enjoyed this podcast and the others to maybe uh, give them a shout out and let people know. If you are uh, stuck inside, well, uh, the only thing you can do is maybe go for a walk here or there. Uh, then please do stick it on, have a listen, and um, you know it's it's an opportune time to do it. Maybe at the moment, um, but do let people know about it and share it. It's what keeps it going, um, and keeps us going in terms of uh, tracing the the path of these elections throughout it. Next week, we will be back. Um, We're going to be moving forward uh, a few years. We're going to look back at at the government uh, as it came in after 82 and some of the big issues that that, uh, hit Irish politics over that period. But we are then going to talk really about the election and what led to the election of 1987, which again is often seen as a landmark election. Uh, 10 years on from Fianna Fáil's 77 uh, victory, what was going to happen? How had the economy changed and what was going to happen for this new revitalised Fine Gael Labour um, and how was uh, it all going to pan out in that government? So we'll get a sense of all that by looking through the prism of the 1987 election next week. For now, thank you all for listening. Uh, do give it a mention and uh, I hope to see you all next week and stay safe out there. <laughs>